Hello all, welcome to the Chicago Justice Show. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate you being here. My name is Tracy Siska. I am the Executive Director of the Chicago Justice Project and your guest for our show. For more information about what we do outside of this show, all of our transparency and accountability work, you can get that at chicagojustice.org. Keep an eye on there. We have plenty of research coming out throughout the summer and in the coming week or two um there will be some really really good stuff um that's gonna you know kind of tell the truth on more issues we have a report i recommend you go there and look at our public safety report looks at 20 years of agenda items in the public safety committee of the city of chicago shows you how in, inept um the committee has been and it sets the stage and context for why there was a city council hearing on friday special hearing and how bad it was so today on today's show we are going to talk um part we're going to show part one of an interview we did with uh former chicago public school ceo former male candidate i think he actually ran for governor too um but paul vallis he's on the show last summer talking financial issues and now we are talking some justice issues he he posts a lot to social media so we're going to challenge him on some of that stuff so part one tonight part two is on wednesday's show then we're going to talk a little bit about the Friday City Council meeting. Then we're going to talk about outing a cop, this uh, video that got released about the one Chicago cop pulling over another one. And we're going to talk not so much about the video itself, but why that came out and what's under what's just under the surface going on there. And then we're going to talk about an uh, op, I'm not op, I had a letter to the editor, short one, um, from, a, from a retired Chicago police officer. We'll tell you just how that thinking just is representative. What's in that letter is representative of what's in the department. And both retired and active duty, they think they are the complete solution for everything. And obviously that is untrue. Before I get to that, though, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to talk to you about sponsoring this show. We would love to live stream some city council, Cook County Board, and um, Illinois General Assembly meetings, but we need your help to do it. You can find us, um, you can go to cjpnation.org to donate. That's our activism website. You can go to uh, chicagojustice.org and donate there. You can hit us up at info chicagojustice.org and we'll send you a direct link for a sponsorship. You can also hit us up on any of the social media you're watching us on now. And um, we can hook you up on becoming a sponsor. We'd really appreciate it. Okay, let me give you a little context about part one of our conversation tonight. Paul is, even though he tries to position himself in this interview as a broker that's trying to help both the city and the union, he came in to help the union. And that means to some extent being friends or associates or working colleagues with John Cotanzara, the FOP Fraternal Order Police President. That by itself, you just, you're just you tarring your stuff with horribleness. He is probably one of the worst cops in Chicago. He's probably doing the city, the citizens of residents of Chicago, a, um, a solid by not being on the street and getting off the street and taking that, um, that job in the FOP, at least it gets him off the street, even though it gets him on television all the time. So Paul posts constantly to social media. He's very political in his don't um, his commentary. So um, we're going to challenge some of that. And um, so this runs about, let's see here, it runs about 30 minutes. Then we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back uh, for the last three segments of the show. 
It's a pretty interesting interview. Part one is tonight. Part one, part two is on Wednesday at 5.30. Okay, I will be back with you after, um, after this segment runs. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Chicago Justice Show. Today, my guest is Paul Vallis, um, ex-CEO of the Chicago Public Schools, mayoral candidate, um, and he's very proficient on social media and really recently became uh, an assistant of sorts. We'll talk, get into that a little bit with the FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police, and negotiating their contract. Paul, thank you so much for jumping on with us again. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's get to um, one of the questions. Why are you helping in negotiating their contract? Why are you helping the Fraternal Order of Police negotiate with the city? Well, first of all, I'm actually helping both sides. The, the FOP invited me to come in and to help them obviously run numbers and obviously kind of like a be, be an expert contributor. Uh, I agreed to do so, but I said only on condition that I not be compensated. So I decided to do a pro bono. Plus, the city's team is led by Jim Francic, and Jim and I negotiated, I don't know, two dozen contracts for the city, not only police and fire contracts, but uh, two Chicago public school uh, contracts with the teachers union, successful contracts negotiated on time. So I think my familiarity with, with uh, all the negotiating parties and obviously, you know, with the financial issues, uh, I think uh, allowed me to, to uh, uh, I like to think, make a contribution. But uh, so I've, I've actually been performing in a pro bono uh, capacity, uh, basically shuttling between both sides and trying to help the process along. Okay, so on your social media and a lot on the FOP's mm -hmm. social media has been this issue of we don't have enough officers, both mm -hmm. for the entire department and for local districts. So let's get into the department. How many police sure. officers should Chicago have? Well, suffice to say that they're probably, I would say, well, last year they didn't fill a thousand vacancies. And, uh, and uh, this year and this year's budget, they eliminated 614 positions. And of course, they're also failing to fill vacancies. So they're probably gonna be about 1500 officers short from um, you know, their, what I would consider to be their peak level or their appropriated level. So they're clearly not uh, filling all the vacancies that they should have. Uh, that's number one. Number two, the strategy uh, that the police department has been employing has only aggravated the problem of not filling your vacancies. So what the, the strategy has been, in a nutshell, is to create these two massive mobile units that are dispatched from one hotspot to another, uh, very often just to sit in cars with flashing lights. And in the process, they've stripped uh, local police districts of, on the average, about 20%. Every district has lost at, at least 20% of their officers. Some districts have lost more. So you have this situation where, like in the, I think in the 11th district, there was one. It was a Wednesday night, particularly violent Wednesday night, when I think only half the beats were covered by beat cars. So, you know, you can't have community policing if you don't have beat cops. You know, you can't have effective policing when the beats aren't covered. So not only do you have the phenomena of not enough beat cars to cover the beats, but you don't have enough backup. So there's delays. There's not only delays in calls, but there's delays when officers are in trouble when there's not enough backups. And when you're not filling your vacancies and you're not doing your promoting, you have a problem. For example, the consent decree calls for a one to 10 ratio of sergeants to officers. I think it's, what is it, one to 20? They're not filling officer vacancies. They don't have enough supervisors. They've attributed out the detective 
division. New York had 6,000 detectives. I think Chicago probably has, on the books, they, they appear to have 1,100, but some officers in the detective division tell me that they even have fewer officers. And sometimes they dispatch those officers who are not working murder cases, but like the burglar, officers working burglary, to be part of the scarecrow patrol. You know, these, these uh, cops that are, are dispatched to sit in their cars with flashing lights in, in high crime areas, or in some cases, downtown. So it's a combination of not filling your vacancies combined with the strategy of stripping the local districts and in turn the local beats of officers so that you can have them sit in their cars downtown or you can dispatch them as part of these mobile units from place to place. Now, because you have that shortage, uh, that is a product of both not filling vacancies and strategy, uh, they've, been, they've become increasingly reliant on the existing officers and in fact, putting them on 12 hour workdays uh, or for that matter, having them work sometimes 10, week, 10 days, sometimes more without a day off. That is a very, very dangerous situation because you have officers, you have tired officers, you have exhausted exhausting officers who are exhausted. And obviously when you don't have the supervisory infrastructure in place, it just creates a very dangerous situation. And, 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 and it creates the possibility of having more, you know, perhaps tragic encounters because the officers are isolated and they don't have the backup and they don't have the resources and they are tired and they are fatigued. So it's not a healthy situation. I agree on a lot of actually what you said. I knew the scarecrow tactic that he's doing, especially with detectives, he did that in Dallas. So if I wanna rip the I media a little bit in Chicago, they never looked at what actually happened in Dallas. They took a very cursory look. Um, I called reporters. So I knew what the, sh the shtick was. In Dallas, he was known for taking detectives in the months leading up to a city council hearing where he'd have to answer about crime. He was known for taking detectives off of all cases and sticking them in cars with their lights you on. Are so, you are so, so right. Uh, uh, you know, he was selected from among the, uh, what I call the, uh, the, B, the B group or the tier two group. Uh, you know, some of the, uh, I think some of the, top superintendents that they had their eyes on were reluctant to come here for obviously for obvious reasons, but he was within the second tier. And I know police officers in Texas and, you know, and, you know, when he was selected, they called me and they were quite surprised that he was. So, and if you, and if you looked at the crime statistics in Dallas, I think the year before he, or the two year previous, two years previous to him coming here, there was a big spike in crime. I remember there was this article in the Dallas I think it's the Dallas Times. I don't remember Dallas saying, "Morning News." We should, yeah, we should look to Chicago for a model on how to stem our rising crime rate, yep. which was kind of a scary thing when you think about it. But you're absolutely right. And look, I'm not beating. I, I don't think I'm beating him up unfairly. I think ultimately the responsibility lies in the mayor's office because the mayor's office does micromanage and they don't micromanage effectively. So. Uh, you know, a lot of what's not being done in the police department is a product of, I think, uh, of negligence on the part of the mayor's office. I'm not only blaming her, but the bottom line is, you know, you, you're supposed to build strong cabinets, dynamic cabinets, and you're supposed to have people in critical leadership positions that have the skills. And I think both he and the first deputy come up lacking. And I think it's a combination of not only the lack of resources, but, you know, <laughs> You're right. I mean, the Chicago Police Department is one of the larger police departments in the country. But okay. when you're not filling vacancies, significant vacancies, when you're gutting your detectives division, we have uh, uh, 
New York, I mentioned, has five times, almost six times the number of detectives we have. They only have three times the number of populations. It's the same thing with L.A. But when you're doing those type of things and then your your strategy strips, strips officers from the local districts, it, it's just not an efficient use. Of, so even the resources that you have, you are simply not using efficiently and or effectively. And you're really exhausting. You're exhausting the, the police department. And that, that's not healthy for anybody. So two things. One, yeah, I agree. I think Brown's totally out of his, his league here. Um, he did have a couple good years in Dallas where crime went down, but then crime shot back up. And he doesn't want to talk about this. So if you look at the beginning and the end, I think homicides and violence actually went up from the beginning of his term to the end of his term. He did have a different two years in the middle there when he was chief. But there was also, and we'll have a report out later this summer, there's a lot of crime data manipulation going on in Dallas. And he was known for that, which is what he's trying to do with these saturation teams. But I do want to push back on one thing, and I want to criticize both the police department and the FOP for this. We Mm -hmm. don't have, no no one will do the research to say how many officers we actually need and how many officers should be in each district, Mm -hmm. right? That 13, you know, the FOP has been, for years and years, we're short of the budgeted number. No one's looked at what happened. How did that budgeted number get created? Right, And I have sources in the department, some in research and development at the time and command level. And they looked and looked and looked and the best they could figure out the 13,750 or whatever the number is, is it was a negotiated number between Phil Klein and the alderman. It wasn't scientifically based because you can do Mm -hmm. staffing reports, departments all over the country, departments, by the way, all over Illinois, Rockford, Springfield, Aurora, they all do staffing studies to know how many cops they need. So um, I, I am a little upset when I hear, well, we're short of, of the real number. We know this is the real number. No, that 13,750 is just a budgeted political number. So mm-hmm. that bothers me. When I hear that, and for the FOP and the police, do the research, do it, and let us have a number. And right. I appeared many years ago on, at a function for the Illinois Criminological Association or something, and I spoke, and then the FOP spoke, and I said, um, we need a real number that's scientifically driven and not partisan by either side. Then we can know what the number is and shoot for it. And then you can, once you take that number, you can take it and go by district. What number should be in each district by, yeah. by calls for service? And the FOP got up after me. This is during Mike Shields' time and said, it's not our responsibility to know how many officers we need on the street. And I was like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> yes, it is, because that number will help you make your officer safer. So I've always been a little harsh when I hear, well, we're short. Well, short of what's the number that we know that we need. And I think both, especially the police department, should do that study. Um, yeah. Go ahead. You, you know, first of all, let me just say that City Hall has always played the game. Oh, absolutely. The, the attrition game. Yes. Because when I became city budget director in, in 1993, I came in and there were like 2,000 police vacancies. There were like 11,000. I don't know, I think it was 800 officers and and they were just not filling the vacancies and that's how they balance their budget every year. So, you know, when people see the budget in the, in, in the, um, in the, uh, in the budget book and they say, oh, we got to defund the cops. Well, guess what? They, they do it through attrition all the time. And Rahm Emanuel had done it. I think Rahm finally went in and in a rare stroke of transparency actually eliminated, I don't know what the, 1,400 positions. Yeah, 1,500 positions just like that. And then they got heat for it. But the bottom line is he went in. So, uh, uh, you know, so clearly they played the funny game. And you have to understand, when you're not filling vacancies 
and you have bad strategy, which makes the, the vacancy rate, it, it only amplifies the problem, then you're paying more in overtime. And they're paying record amounts of money in overtime. And you know what you get when you're paying, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in overtime, you're getting fired cops, you know, right. reduced effectiveness. No, but, but I agree with you. They need, they need to determine what that money and what that number is, but that number needs to reflect a sound strategy. Right now, the strategy they have is unsound. It's not only unsound in terms of just uh, uh, publics and uh, in terms of what you need to combat violent crime, but it's also unsound financially because you're doing, you may be saving money on the attrition side, but you're just pouring it back in on the uh, overtime, on what yeah. you're paying in overtime. And I think that to some degree, you're right. They are doing this, the funding thing, whereas they're just always not filling vacancies and they're stripping officers, but they're not then turning around and using the money for things that might otherwise drive down crime. Right. Like, um, I am a huge fan. Like, I think if you take the five most violent crime neighborhoods in Chicago and you instantly did universal basic income, where these people were just, you would just flood that money into those communities you would see things happen. We have, and we, we talked about it on the show before. I don't want to go down the TIF rat hole. No, that's okay. But, but you know, with, with almost a billion dollars in TIFs, yes. and then you're siphoning money yeah. off of the department. And I, I am a defund person, but I am also for stand up the other responses, whatever those are I going see. to be before you take money from the police. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. And, and, and look, as you know, because you've been following me for the better part of two years, I've been posting on the, on the progressive agenda side too. I mean, I mean, we've had two budgets that have not been progressive by any stretch of the imagination. Look, the mayor's vaunted $750 million East Side West Side initiative. 500 million of that is Rahm Emanuel transportation projects. So it's only $250 million, much of which would have been there during the Emanuel administration. So I see no infusion of money into the poor communities. Let me tell you, you not only have the billion dollar test surplus, but if you wanted to raise money for capital, infrastructure, housing, environmental cleanup, because the south side and the west side, you've got areas, I mean, they're environmental uh, calamity areas. Yes, they are. I mean, the lead in the water poisoning is a is is a far worse crisis in poor communities than COVID, because there's, uh, the, you know, the, the science tells you that even minute amount of lead can do permanent damage. And a lot of the damage that is done neurologically can be linked to violence, bullying, and even crime. There's been studies, and I'll I'll send you the, the most recent studies because I've been hounding on this. I mean, why can't they purchase water filtration devices, give it to poor families? I mean, instead of waiting, the new state mandate for lead pipe removal says by 20, by 2070, Chicago's supposed to have lead-free pipes. Well, great. That means the kids will spend another 50 years. Yeah, those uh, generations of kids are poisoning. But something like this, you could issue bonds, amortize the interest and financials bonds with TIF revenues that when the tips expire will be freed up and you can actually bond off that future money now and you could raise billions for investment in housing investment in environmental cleanup in uh, you know you could use the money and leverage that money to in the opportunity zones to take advantage of those tax incentives that are there and you could provide a, an infusion of investment of dollars into those poorest communities and begin to address the underlying causes of violence in those communities. Now, I'll tell you something else too, because I did, um, what you may not realize is I did 
I worked for two years uh, with Sally Yates in the Justice Department, developing a strategy to to uh, uh, to revamp education and occupational training in the criminal justice system, particularly the Bureau of Prisons. And I spent considerable time working with local people on this and making the rounds and talking about the potential because the infrastructure is already there. You've got countless organizations and job training programs and support programs. They're all out there, but they're all uncoordinated. And many of them are out there by themselves and not supported. You could literally create a network of adult and occupational training programs using an infrastructure that's already there, properly funded and properly supported. And you could get this, 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 uh, this, these tens of thousands of individuals who are in some phase of the criminal justice system back into the economy by providing them with, with uh, adult ed and occupational training and job training opportunities. I mean, we've got all this COVID money. Where's the Job Corps program? I mean, where's the work study program for the high school kids? I mean, uh, aldermen, some aldermen have told me that as many as 60, 70% of the men uh, in their communities are in some phase of the criminal justice system. Yeah. They don't have the skills. They don't have the opportunities. Even if they want to go to work for the city, they can't because they have a record. If they want to get a grant, whatever, we could change all that. And 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 and, and the models are there. And while I certainly have talked a lot about cops and things like that, I've also spent a considerable amount of time talking about, you know, uh, how you can how you you can create. Uh, an infrastructure of uh, kind of an educational, occupational training and job placement infrastructure, taking advantage of programs as well as federal dollars that are there that are waiting to be tapped into. And you can get this sea of, of populace in the communities that, that if you don't do something with them, you're ultimately not going to change the dynamic in those communities. And you can, you're going to continue to struggle with the violence that we're experiencing. Michael Rodriguez, now Alderman Rodriguez, um, but when he was running um, Little Village Community Development Corp, told me one time, like something like 60% or maybe even higher of men of color were, it may, it may have been just Latino men, but I think it was men of color between 16 and 25 are completely unattached from anything. Yeah. Which means they're not in school and they're not working. And it's like, wait a minute. I mean, that's a calamity. And no matter how many things, right, no matter how many police you send into that community, if you don't change that equivalent, and I've said the same thing with um, when I was at UIC getting my graduate degree, they um, were doing um, studies with kids in, in, in Chicago, and they did one where the, they were talking about decision making and stuff with um, the, trying to change their practice of decision making. And one kid said, what good is this? I'm going to 30. What am I going to think about being married or being 30, you know, 30 years old and older? Why am I going to save money? It's like, what's the point? I'm this a black male. I'm going to be dead yeah. or in prison by 30. You know, I posted that's, something. That's a horrific failure. I did an op-ed piece about a year and a half ago. I posted something on, on Facebook and I apologize for my post being so long. Somebody referred to me as the Leo Tolstoy. Of Facebook. <laughs> you know what I mean? But the, uh, uh, but, uh, um, and I'm getting ready to do another post talking about how, if I were mayor, I would direct the schools to create universal work study in the high schools, like Crystal Ray, the, yes. the famous Jesuit yep. school. Uh, there's now 35 of them where the kids go to school and they work at the same time. And it's not like they're creating alternatives to college, 
but the, the bottom line is it's extraordinarily effective. And what they could do is they could offer work study electives for all the high school kids. Once they hit like, once they're say 16, 15, 16 work study. And the city controls $24 billion. All the governments that the mayor controls, it's $24 billion. Almost 100,000 jobs, both public sector and private sector contract jobs. You could create tens of thousands of work study jobs and any like contractor vendor who got subsidies from the state, right. you know, you go up there, Lincoln Yards, a big subsidy. Everybody's got to create work study. All these kids, you could get into work study jobs, you work study electives. There are so many wasted courses that these high school kids take, not only electives, but irrelevant courses. If you make it to your senior year, most of that senior year is irrelevant anyway. Get the kids in work study, get them off the street. Get, and yeah, I, I used to, and that means get all of them off the street, all the kids. You know, so I, you know, I made reference to that the other day and somebody said that saying get kids off the street is dog whistle. My dad got me and my brothers off the street because he was an accountant and he always got his jobs with his clients. So as early as, you know, eighth grade, I was working, thank God. But the bottom line here is to get these kids in safe and secure environments, whether they're doing internships with How's this? Police, fire, EMP, EMS, police, sanitation, transportation. Kids who are in the law could do internships with the law departments that get tens of millions of dollars in contracts from the city to to settle these legal lawsuits all the time. These legal cases that are brought against the city. There are so many things, construction, you name it. There are so many opportunities for these kids to get in work study. Then Then they're off the street. They're in the safe and superior. They're being mentored by working men and women who are the best working models in the community and you're paying them, you're putting money in their pocket. So this is very feasible. And that in itself, because guess what? It's a catastrophe what's happened in the high school. Do you realize that last year, eight, 9% of those arrested for shootings, 8% for murders, 12% for aggravated battery, 32% for burglaries, 49% arrested for carjackings, were school-aged children, 17 years and younger. Think about that. And these kids are not coming back to school. What are they going to do? They're just, they're they're, they're the AAA baseball league for the the gangs. I mean, they're just, they're going to end up in the prison system or or many of these uh, 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 children are going to end up in that. There was a study done. It was a new Tribune research group out of University of Chicago. They're affiliated with the, uh, the crime lab. And they were saying that if you're arrested for carjacking a car, you're like, I think the number was 70 times more likely to get killed, uh, to get murdered to, or to get shot uh, than if you were not. So what are we going to do about it? The school's right there. They've got the largest budget. They've got an $8.4 billion budget. They have two and a half billion dollars in COVID monies since December, that uh, most of which was not budgeted for, they've got great flexibility to get these kids engaged because it can't be all about the cops. Or even oh. on the, and, and I'll mention one more thing, like we all promised all the candidates during the election, we all raised our hand and said, reopen the mental health clinics. Yep. The mental health clinics. I mean, you know what Rom saved when he closed the mental health clinics? What did he save? $3 million or, or, or lost- maybe... He, he lost a hundred times that. A fraction of the yep. You could open a mental health clinic in each of the police districts. They could be community owned, community run, community operated. 
And, and, and first of all, most of the funding can come from Medicaid if you're billing properly, both the state and federal government. There is money in COVID specifically set aside in the COVID Relief Act to fund you know, mental health services and things like that. You know, they should be opening these centers in every community, yep. crisis, family crisis centers, opioid addiction centers, et cetera. There's no reason why they can't do that, but they're not doing anything. I don't see any of that going on. No, because like for better or worse, I mean, it, there has been, no, in my opinion, almost no change. If you look from Daly to Rom to Lightfoot, absolutely, it, it, it's funding the cranes in the South and West Loop and in the main loop and right. in Fulton Market. That's send money, keep keep the cranes going, um, keep the power. Like I used to have a uh, office on Wacker and Wabash, and they changed the flowers out there on Wacker Drive like five times a year. It's beautiful, but can you go a little further west, my friends? Because if you go west enough, you're going to see, you know, I, I don't know where that shelter is on the west side, but man, it is so depressing. Hundreds of people lined up, right? And they're lined up at food banks. It's a moral decision that when you're mayor, you have to make. And I knew, I, I said we would know on our first budget. Either the TIFs were going yep. to be changed, he was going to start shutting them down and signaling, no, things are going to change. We're going to spend this money in a different way, and we're going to stop just creating new ones or funding all these cranes, or you're not. To me, nothing can fundamentally change in the city, uh, especially around this funding, unless you deal with TIFs. Siphoning off a billion dollars is just That's can't cool. happen. Well, not only are they siphoning off a billion, but they have uh, like $1.7 in cash balances. And again, if you wanted to, you could actually, and I did this when I was in Philadelphia to, to renovate the schools. I didn't have money, I didn't want to raise taxes. So I issued bonds to amortize the interest, which allowed you to really start paying the, 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 the you know, the, uh, for the cost of the bonds. Uh, the, the debt service kicked in when my old debt retired. So I was able to take the expiring tax levies for bonds and use them for the new construction. And so I didn't have to raise property taxes a dime. You could do that with tips. You could take these, you could, you could issue bonds, amortize the interest, and you could finance those bonds with money that will be freed up when the TIFs, the tax increment financing districts, expire. And you can raise billion to invest on the south and west side, to do environmental cleanup, to take all these houses that are abandoned, that are in that have been in homes, you know, the uh, uh, tax delinquency sales and things like that. And turn them over to community-based organizations with grants to renovate them. And, and you could create tens of thousands of affordable housing units, literally literally in a, in, in a short few years. You could do all those things. You could subsidize food courts and, and, and what I call social service-based uh, providers, community-owned social service-based providers, job training, opioid addictions. And I know, you know, and, and having been through those issues with, 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 um, you know, with, uh, with uh, a member of my own family, I, I am, I am in, intimately familiar with that. So, so uh, not to mention, mention the mental health centers, the, the local job training programs, you could do all those things. Now, I don't see where either of the mayor's two budgets have been progressive. And sure, the progressive caucus comes out, but they talk about some of these grandiose things that the city doesn't have to, I mean, the city doesn't really have the capacity going in and, and basically to, to tell land, landlords, you have to freeze your, your, your rents or 
you know, or, or people don't have to pay their mortgages and things like that. I mean, the bottom line is there are some things the city can't do, simply can't do, but there are many things that the city can do and environmental cleanup, tapping into the TIF money, both current and future monies now, getting the school district to, to allocate even just 2% of the budget to do universal work study. So all these high school kids are getting paid, they're in work study jobs, they're learning what it is uh, to live and operate in the work world while they're getting their high school diploma, doing the environmental cleanup. These are things that the city can do now. And these are not budget busters and they'll do more to help create conditions for a reduction in violence and to make it more, to make the police more effective because they won't have to deal with all the other things that they have to deal with besides policing. And, and, and they can do it without busting the budget. And if you begin to revitalize these neighborhoods, it's gonna help the city, it's gonna help our tax base, it's oh, gonna absolutely. help stabilize. Yeah, it's gonna have a long-term growth is how the city is how the city's going to prosper. Right, but you have to have a real commitment to making that change and a long-term mm-hmm. plan to do it. And you got to make decisions um, to prioritize those areas over other areas. Um, I think we've been so, Rom did it, Daly did it. We are like, we're always, we're always near broke. We're always near broke. Just don't look at that other set of funds over there, the TIF funds. Don't look at that. Oh, wait, the South Loop changed. That's right. We stuck half a billion dollars of TIF money into the South Loop and funded yeah. half of those buildings. Oh, that's why it changed. Yeah. And we just, we have a commitment to some areas and a non-commitment to the other. And, but it, it's, you look at everything. It's around the same thing with policing. It's the same thing with the department. We don't have long-term strategies. Everything is about owning the new cycle now in some fashion, right? Right. I, um, right. All right, we are back. Thank you for sticking around, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, we have a couple, before I comment, we have a couple questions through Twitter from Donate Your Entire Bag. First one, why should we be setting aside extra money for vacancies that are not being filled? If you're talking about vacancies in the CPD, I am not talking, and if Paul was, well, then poo-poo on him, I was not talking about setting aside that money in any way, shape, or form. What I'm saying is, if you're going to do, if you're going to reduce the staffing of the police department, that money, that that savings, should not just get obliterated into the budget. And you don't know where it went to, and and the mayor can do anything she wants with it, or anything he or she wants to do with it. No, 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 no. You're going to cut a five hundred, a hundred, six hundred. Rom, I mean, daily it left under fourteen hundred, and then that's what Rom cut. Those positions, that savings, every dollar saved should go directly to South and West Sides communities, period. It should be a one-to-one match. And that is the only way you're going to sustain change in those communities, in those particular areas. So that's my answer to the first one. If Paul said that, I don't remember him saying it, but if he did poo-poo on him, I didn't say that. That's not what I meant. Every dollar saved um, by reducing the size of the police force should be spent on the South and West Sides for investment and economic development and social services. Then in the end, will have a much longer lasting and positive effect on violence and crime than just keep throwing money into policing. The next one is some students feel that, feel work study isolates lower income students. Are there alternatives for equal education? I'm not gonna dive too deep into this. That's a little out of my belly wickle. Um, but I will say that I have, I've heard things like that. I know 
Um, an ex-girlfriend of mine's, of mine, her dad used to literally drive the bus for Crystal Ray. And he used to take the kids and pick them up from their internships where they worked. So, yes, I mean, we have a society where everything, if you do not, if you're in poverty or close to the poverty line or just low income compared to everyone else, you are going to be disadvantaged. And the problems with our schools and everything thereof is that they do not make up for it. They do not equal the playing field. So I think we need, find, need to find ways to equal the playing field and try to do whatever we can to not isolate um, the students. I am for work study, um, where and when that can be done successfully. I wouldn't take over all of their education, obviously, but I think a portion of that would be good. I do think we'd have to set up a massive infrastructure for transportation and making sure they're safe. But also, I think Crystal Ray exclusively, or at least back then, was, was all businesses. I would also do nonprofits and community organizations. I think there's all kinds of things you can expose kids to through that program to allow them to get their feet wet in fields that they might not otherwise know about or have access to. Um, and they can make contacts who know that may also help them. So that's my feeling on those two. Just my few comments on the video before we move on, go to the, uh, our quick break and then on to the, a little bit about the city council hearing on Friday. Listen, what Ballas is talking about to some degree he's right on, which is Brown is doing a lot of scarecrow policing, which is putting cops in cars with their lights on in certain areas of the city. Um, and just having them turn their lights on and sit there as a deterrent. Now, because you have such bad reporting in Chicago on crime and violence and on like superintendent picks and stuff, you didn't know this was coming. Mm -hmm. I started making calls extensively to not only people in Dallas, but the media themselves to know what kind of BS was coming to us from Brown. And this is one of the things he was, um, he was, um, he would do this every year before the city council meetings in Dallas. He would take detectives off cases, I think off of all cases and have them sit in cars for weeks at a time so that he could drive down the crime numbers a little bit. And he'd be able to report that to the city council. Um, so we know this is coming. It's BS, but this is, you know, we're caught in this never ending circle. The police have much less to do with crime, with crime rates going up or down than the people want to think and let the police want to think. The police take credits for crime going down and then they take the blame for it going up and they don't like that. So they'll do anything they can to drive the numbers down, even artificially, even lie about it. And Brown is a pro at that from his time in Dallas. First year or two in Dallas, homicides stayed the same. Then they dipped pretty well. And then by his last year, straight up again and equal to his first year, if not worse. But if you read his book and you listen to all the propaganda and everything he talks about, it all huge success in Dallas. Mm -mm -mm -mm. And ladies and gentlemen, it's saying the same. He had probably not that much to do with going down, probably even less to do with going up again, less to do with. Crime is driven by so many societal and social factors. It's so hard to figure out exactly what's going on. But you can't, that will not stop exploitive, useless, horrible, manipulative politicians from blaming them for things. We'll get to that in the next segment. But it also won't stop corrupt, useless, lying, manipulative 
police officials and politicians for taking credits for reductions that have, they have nothing to do with. Okay, we are going to go to a one-minute break about our nation, which is our volunteer program that brings volunteers and interns together to work on projects. And then we'll be back to talk um, at least two segments, one about the city council meeting on Friday, and then we're going to talk um, about an officer caught on camera trying to get out of a ticket. And why, not so much about that, but why that actually got made public, at least my thoughts on it. Catch you in a minute. Join a group of engaged and committed individuals advocating for transparency and accountability in the local justice system around the country. Get engaged through crowdsourced research projects, digital activism, public policy advocacy, or become a social media ambassador. Our criminal justice system will not reform itself. Communities must demand it. Transparency can be the fuel for justice our local communities need to combat the weaponizing of data by our justice system. Transformation of our justice system cannot occur until we know exactly what they are doing and who they are doing it to. Get involved today, CJP Nation. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're back on to our segment segment of the evening. Friday City Council special meeting. You may have seen this article in the Sun-Times for our podcast audience. City Council grills top cop on shooting surge. It's from the Sun-Times. There is a crisis in our neighborhoods. Now, well, so my question about the crisis, was there a crisis in 16? Was there a crisis in 12? And I mean, I'll get to it later, but I want to do a special show on just interpreting crime data and crime incident data and shootings and homicides and what number is right to believe. But let's just stick with the city council meeting for now. So this meeting was called for by a slew of aldermen. Many are useless and worthless. Many, 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 especially on this issue. Now, first of all, let me say, don't fall for the theater. Don't fall for the rhetoric. Don't fall for the theater. Don't fall for it from the mayor or the superintendent and that side. Don't fall for it from the other side. All their supposed critics in the city council. Most of these people are absolutely worthless. Some, like Alderman Ed Burke, are just responsible for millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars being stolen from communities. I mean, he has been, he's head deep in corruption, right? I should call him f- f- soon-to-be federal prisoner or whatever number you want to pick, because he's going to the prison for sure. So, let's list the Alderman. Be- no, let's go back and say, don't fall for the theater. Look at what they actually do. It's not about what they the theater that goes on in the city council about what they actually achieve or propose to achieve or try to drive. This is not, when I read these neighbors, these names soon, you're not going to get like, oh my God. Yeah, these are the people really pushing massive economic changes to the city so that the, so these people in these communities can change their lives. This ain't it. This is the epitome. And the first one here helped pass that massive TIF in Lincoln Park, Lincoln Yards, the Lincoln Yards TIF. No, tax and finance, no. Highly, that is part and parcel of why the things on the south and west side are they are the way they are and are going to continue, if not get worse, is because you keep sucking money out of the general till. Okay, 
So let's get to the list first. These are the alder people that sent a letter to Lori Lightfoot into the city council demanding this special, enforcing this special city council meeting that was held on Friday. Brian Hopkins, Marty Quinn, Ed Burke, Alderman Raymond Lopez, David Moore, Matt O'Shea. I don't know Tabarez's first name. Sorry. Um, I think it's Michael Scott over in 24. Cardona, Villegas, Nugent, Vesquez, Napolitano, an ex-cop. Ooh, yeah, he's all for economic reforms of the city. Ugh. Alderman Brendan O'Reilly, the loop guy. Remember, he's a member, all ladies and gentlemen, when you talk about credibility. He's an ex. Mike, he comes from the Michael Madigan political tree. Alderman Taylor, the one that's recently been um, pushing for Anjanette Young and uh, getting in fights with Ta uh, um, Lightfoot. I don't know enough. To be honest, I don't know enough about her voting history to know. Um, then there's Sincho Lopez and Sadowski Garza. Okay. A little bit there. And then here's two people. A lot of rhetoric. Not so much in the legislation, to be honest with you. Alderman Sawyer, Alderman Beal. What have they done? That's the Black Caucus. That Black Caucus is, for the most part, on police accountability, for the most part, has been useless. Just like the Latino caucus, caucus, and for the most part, the Progressive Caucus. Useless throughout the years. Useless. No massive change. So that's the list of people that called this meeting. Look at what they do. Look at, the, look at their legislation. Look at their votes. Right? Because it isn't about this theater and these meetings and everyone's happy. Like, see, I, I forced a meeting. I signed a letter to force a meeting. And we got this theater where we somewhat argued. What's changing policy-wise? What's changing legislative-wise? For, for this meeting, did anything, did they reinvest or redirect any new city money to these communities on the south and west side where violence is most prevalent? Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Absolutely not. That's not what they do. It's not what they do. So this was because Lightfoot is politically weak, especially on this issue. So they're attacking her on it. And Brown. Listen. Has Lightfoot done a great job on justice and police reform? Absolutely not. Is David Brown a top pick for the superintendent? Absolutely not. But Lightfoot picked him. Lightfoot owns him. It's sad. I mean, and I still think, and I'm still convinced, and I will say this, these gun violence issues that Chicago is dealing with, cities across the country are dealing with them. This is not happening in a vacuum, ladies and gentlemen. As the pandemic continues to wane, Providing more and more people get vaccinated over time. Gun violence is going to go down. It is just a reality. Um, what is not going to go down is the political opportunism and sliminess and scumminess of our city council. What did Friday's city council meeting achieve? It achieved a lot for them, for the members that signed it, so that they could push people to, so they could be shown as pushing the mayor and put on justice issues. What changed in effect on the street? Nothing. Nothing. 
Very little concrete to help the south and west side ever comes from city council meetings. What comes from the city council meetings is stuff that hurts the south and west side. That's what gets done. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to move on to our next segment. This is a report from CBS to Chicago. The title is Camera Caught on Camera. Chicago police officer goes on profanity late in tirade while being pulled over by other officers. And just real quick for our podcast audience, you can get all the videos and all the images shown on today's show when this pod, when the pod posts. It's through a post on our news news part of our site. Go there. You can get the videos and access to the videos. Watch them. Access to the images. Okay, so we are going to watch this report from CBS News. I think it runs about three minutes. And then we will be back to discuss it. Department. All surrounding one cops caught on camera tirade after getting pulled over by fellow officers. CBS 2's Suzanne Lamigneau joins us now. Suzanne, his job is to actually train other cops. And that's why this raises concerns, Brad. Now, the video that you're about to see was sent to us by several different sources within the Chicago Police Department. This video has gone viral. It's been seen on social media more than 16,000 times. Now, we're not identifying the officer in the video. And the reason for that is there are many questions, many questions among them. Why fellow officers want you to see this? Officers approach a person in a car and he says this. Police sources say the man in this car is a Chicago police officer. Several sources also say he has worked as a use of force instructor at the Chicago Police Academy. I'm pulling around just like everybody else did. I stopped. We do not know when this stop happened, why, or what occurred before the man was pulled over. During the exchange, an officer says to the man, Just like y'all. Tweaking, bro. He's then asked for his badge. Then one officer asks. One of the officers tries to ask a question. The man interrupts, saying. His response? Data we obtained through the Freedom of Information Act shows this officer worked as part of the CPD's community safety team from March 4th to at least May 4th of this year. This team is designed to build trust within a community. This isn't the first time the CST has come under fire. We first reported in March about Officer James Hunt. He bragged on camera about having killed someone. He was removed from the team after CBS2 notified the department. If you're not on the clock at the moment, you're still a police officer. Dr. Arthur Lariggio is a professor of psychology and criminal justice at Loyola University, Chicago. Lariggio says we don't know the factors impacting the officer at the time of the stop. He could have been under particular types of pressure uh, and could not afford uh, a moment to being, to being pulled over. Now, in response to this story, I reached out to FOP President John Catanzara. He told me that what happened in that video is between the officers and he has no comment. The officer in the stop has been on the force for three years. 
Suzanne Lemonio, CBS2 News. Sorry about that little audio issue. So why aren't they identifying these people? Why not? Now, if you look at that video through, I guess there are two possibilities. One, the guy did it, and he's just trying to get out of a ticket because he's a cop, which I'm not endorsing by any stretch. Write him a ticket. However... Why is it the news is so afraid to talk about race? Maybe what happened there is he's a black guy that's gotten pulled over for the thousandth time because he's black by two white cops pulling over a black man who did nothing, theoretically, right? Or he did do it, he got pulled over, shows his cop ID, and knows if he was white, he'd get out. And they just let him go. And the fact that they're not, he knows or he thinks is based because he's black. I mean, in Chicago, wouldn't be that two white cops would pull over a black guy for no reason, would it? That wouldn't happen. Would it? So I just think this, they should have gotten a hold of these people. They should have named them. They should have talked to them. I don't think the video itself is a story because they don't know why it happened. Just that he was pissed off at the cops. Could it be that he was just pissed off because he got doing something and he didn't feel like he wanted to take it because he's a cop? Sure enough. Could it be they pulled over a black guy for no apparent reason and he wanted to show and he thought because I'm a cop I have my get out of jail free card and they didn't like it? Do you know this guy to his partner? What do you mean do you know this guy? There are 12,000, 13,000 cops in Chicago. What do you mean, do you know him? Did the, did the black cop in the car if he, say that he worked in the same unit as your partner? I don't understand. So that's part of it. The bigger question, ladies and gentlemen, is how did this video get made public? Who would make that public? Who would know it exists and who would make it public? So, the two white cops on the scene and the black cop in the car are three possibilities. Now, I think it's pretty rest assured that the black cop would not have ready access to that video. And if he did get access, would have to go through some internal workings to show that he got access and they would know he was the one who leaked it. So, the white cops... Someone who knew the white cops that had access to the video. I want to tell you, I think that's that may be the most interesting part of the story. And CBS is like, well, we don't know who leaked it, but we're going to show you the video anyways. We didn't really do anything to find out either. My spidey sense says they pulled him over for no reason. But who knows? 
We'll never know. I don't think the video itself is a story, but leave it up to our news to make it one. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Um, we'll be back at 5.30 on Wednesday evening, 5.30 Central, for the um, part two of the Vallis interview, the interview with Paul Vallis, and uh, more probably about the city council hearing. Thank you very much for tuning in, whether it's uh, through any of the social media or through our podcast. Thank you so much, and we'll be talking to you on Wednesday.